Thank you. Good morning. Everybody sleep okay? Yeah. Now, uh, are some of the people, uh, um, I don't know where, uh, in terms of everybody here today, is everybody here now? Or are there people that have left last night? Or, I, Okay. So, and then tonight there'll be other people coming as well, right? So, uh, today what I wanted to share with you as we conclude our series uh, this morning here at the retreat is... Um, I want to sort of cast a bigger vision for what God has called you guys to do. And hopefully uh, to give you sort of a, a, a look ahead into the future. What kind of ministry can you do here in, in Sydney? Um, one of the interesting things about, um, there's a report that was published in 2015. And this report uh, was talking about church planting in, in Australia. One of the most uh, fascinating numbers was uh, the question of multicultural churches. And the question was, how many of you in, in Australia, when you start a church, think about planting a multicultural church or have multicultural as an emphasis? Uh, the, the answer was that only 20%, that mo about 80% of churches in Australia are not even thinking that way. Which means that 8 out of 10 churches that are being planted are not even thinking multicultural. And so you guys are in the leading, sort of, I would say, in the forefront of even having that vision. And, and Steve, uh, when he and I first had this conversation, that's, that's kind of my passion. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. I love the diversity. I love talking with people from other parts of the world here. Uh, and just to be able to connect with that, because I believe that this is going to be the future of what the church is going to look like. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. Well, let's um, uh, begin with a word of prayer together, uh, and then we'll go right into our session. So let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you again for this weekend. And I have just been so amazed at the work that you're doing at this church. And Lord, uh, thank you for um, uh, Pastor Steve, and thank you for Mel and their leadership as pastors here. But also, Lord, thank you for every single one, because, Lord, all of us, in one sense, are called to minister, to, minist to ministry, that we are all part of the priesthood of all believers. And, and so, Lord, I pray that this weekend would equip us to think about what you have called us to do and to be, that you have called us not just to be Christians who come to church on Sunday, hear a sermon, sing a song, and then go home. But you have called all of us to be missionaries, that you have called us to this place, to this city, to this time to make a difference and make an impact for what you've called us to do. So thank you again, Lord, uh, for the reminder, and thank you for the, just the, the fellowship that we can have this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, like I said, I, I've enjoyed my time immensely. Um, um, and what was the thing that you fed me this morning? So, somebody fed me this little topic. Huh? It's called veggie something, Vegemites. So, so I had my first Vegemite. By the way, the, the funny thing was I, I didn't know what that was. As soon as I went downstairs into my room, I was getting ready. I was watching something. Uh, I, I was watching my baseball team in the U.S. And the first commercial that came on was Vegemites. So, so I think I may have to buy one and take it home. <laughs> I know Pastor Steve loves it. So... Uh, <laughs> No, but anyway, he doesn't. Uh, but um, I want to talk about uh, something that I think is going to help you think bigger than where you're thinking now. You know, oftentimes we look at our size and, and we say, man, I wish we could do more. And in due time, you can. But the key right now is to establish the foundation for the future. And so uh, I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Um, 
When I first developed this message 20 years ago, it is the message that I keep on preaching on a regular basis because it reminds me of the vision that God called us to have. Now, if I were to ask you, um, do you want the most out of life? I think that question most people say, you know what, I, I want to have a meaningful existence. I want to have a purposeful life. Nobody wants to live their life with the sense of like, man, I, I just don't want my life to matter. We all want to have, uh, we all want to matter. We all want to be different. We want to all make an impact. Um, well, I, I heard of a, a guy in California, this is actually a true story. Um, now, by the way, have you ever heard that Californians are, are like cereal? You guys ever hear that? Uh, if you're not a fruit or a flake, you're a nut. And so that, that's what they describe Californians. Sometimes they're really crazy. They do crazy things. But this was a, a man who actually did something really crazy. Uh, he actually uh, went out um, in his neighborhood and he bought uh, 45 used weather balloons um, from a local army surplus store. And he filled it up with helium. And what he decided to do was to tie the balloons to his chair, to his lawn chair. And what he was going to do is he took a pack, uh, a six pack of beer, and he took a, uh, uh, some sandwiches and a BB gun. So as the, as the, uh, and that's the actual picture, as it would ascend into the sky, maybe about a hundred feet into the air, he would, you know, just shoot down one of the balloons and then he would think that it would slowly descend. That was his plan, Okay. Well, plans don't always work out the way we intended. So instead of going 100 feet in the air, I don't know what the equivalent of that is here, but uh, he went 10,000 feet in the air, right in the middle of the uh, air traffic control. So basically, uh, they had to shut down all of uh, Los Angeles International Airport. And he was too frightened at that point. He was so high in the air. He was too frightened to shoot down the balloons. So he stayed airborne for over two hours forcing the airport to shut down, causing long delays, and making everybody upset. Well, finally, uh, as the, uh, the balloons deflated, he descended down, and the police surrounded him, and they handcuffed him, and they were taking him to jail. And the reporter kind of stopped him and asked three questions. The first question is, were you scared? And his answer was, yes, very scared. Would you do it again? And his answer was, no, I'll never do it again. But the third question was interesting. He goes, why did you do it? And as he, he answered, he said, because I just couldn't sit there. The answer to the third question really was he was sort of feeling this sense of uh, that I had to do something with my life. And so he wanted to see life from a different perspective. It was just a little bit more than he expected. But he wanted to make something out of his life. And I thought about that. And I, as I read this story, and, and it's just sort of, you know, somebody who does something crazy. If, if I, as a Christian, had the choice of just standing there or sitting there versus doing something radical and crazy, what choice would I make? And I think for most of us as Christians, we would choose the comfort and convenience of life versus the risk that God offers. And I believe that... If we want to make the most out of life, we almost have to think differently than the way the world thinks. Uh, Larry Walters, I believe, in many ways, sort of reminds us that God calls us to a life of adventure. Now, God calls us to something that is, that is bigger than what we could ever hope and imagine. Now, for me, um, I'll give you a little bit of my background. I grew up uh, as a Korean-American. I came from, uh, I was born in Korea. 
Uh, I left Korea when I was six years old. And so when I left, Korea was still a third world country. I remember as a little boy, um, when I left Korea in, in the early 70s, I mean, streets were still dirt paved, uh, dirt um, roads. Uh, it was very poor country. And so a lot of people that immigrated uh, became migrants from Korea to America. What happened because of, of, of economic uh, success. They wanted their, they, they, they want to educate their kids. So I remember going as a, uh, as a little boy, growing up in this environment in the Korean church. And one of the things I saw in the Korean church uh, was there was a lot of divide. That Korean identity in, in America became such that, that, that really that's what we kind of focused on is, is our Koreanness. And as many of you guys know the story, uh, you guys kind of experienced that there's some great things in the Korean church. Our passion for the Lord, our, our desire for mission, our, our early morning prayer, our, our meals. Do you guys still have lunch during the afternoons? That's every Korean church has a meal, right? Uh, have a lunch. And, and, and I grew up with that. And I remember one thing that was the most challenging thing. As I was growing up in America, in a Korean church, uh, I, I wanted to speak in English. And I remember one Korean pastor, and this was early on when I was a little boy. He said to me, um, you got to learn Korean uh, to truly be Korean. And I said, but, but I, I don't know Korean. And he said, it doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit will interpret for you. <laughs> I said, really? I, I, he's not doing a good job. I'm just sitting there listening to a sermon, and, and I would doodle. And, 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 and their whole thing was, you got to be Korean. And I realized growing up in a Korean church at, in, as an Asian uh, American is that their, my Korean identity was actually more important for them than my relationship with Jesus, my Christian identity. And, and as a result of that, I, I kind of left the Korean church. And I think in, in some sense, this happened like 30, 40 years ago, that story is repeated generation after generation. And I remember when I, as a young pastor, this was 30 years ago, I, I, I decided to go into ministry, and Korean pastors would always say this. Uh, and this is how they would recruit young pastors to work at their church. They would always say, um, in the next five years, we'll all die out, and you'll take over our church. And this was like 40 years ago. <laughs> Five years later, they get another first pastor from Korea, and then another five years later, they get another. And so we were basically growing up in America, kind of still being treated as children. And I think for many of us, that, that experience that I went through in America is a very common experience that happens all across uh, the, the world, and especially even in Australia, talking with Steve uh, about that. And so one of the things that, that God really began to give to me early on was a vision. And, and when we talk about vision, it's the mo one of the most important things. Vision is the ability to see through the eyes of God. Vision is the ability to see what, what, what God calls us to see. Uh, Chuck Swindoll uh, says this, vision is the ability to see above and beyond the majority, to be unenamored by statistics, unintimidated by odds, unmoved obstacles like so-called impossibilities, restrictions, and difficulties. In other words, Vision is the ability to see through the lens of God. And so part of what I wanted to do was I, I asked God, God, give me a vision for the future. What does a vision for, for the next generation look like? Uh, are, are we called just to be under a, a Korean identity? Is that our primary mission in life? Or is our mission to be somebody different or to do something more? Maybe even take a risk and do something crazy. And I think one of the things is that here's the reality of most of us is, is that we choose to be comfortable and we choose to not be a pioneer. Uh, in America many years ago, 350 years ago, a shipload of travelers traveled from, from England 
to go to the uh, northeast coast of America. And they established their first town. And the next year, they elected a town government. The third year, the town government planned a road five miles uh, westward into the wilderness. The fourth year, the people tried to impeach the town government because they thought it was a waste of public funds to build five miles westward into the wilderness. And here's the problem. (laughs) Here's the challenge. Here were people who traveled 3,000 miles in the, in, in the dangerous seas, who were dying out of disease, who were dying of starvation. They were willing to make that trek, and they landed. And once they landed, instead of going five miles westward, they choose to stay comfortable in that little town. And I think that's the story of most of us. And I think what distinguishes churches that, that, that makes a difference versus churches that don't is that churches that don't often are comfortable with the status quo. And so my challenge to you is this, that I believe the chapel in Sydney has a unique vision. That God is calling you to something bigger and better than what you could ever hope or imagine. And here's the thing that is exciting for me, is that I think that one of the ways that you guys can have a bigger vision is to have a vision of what the kingdom of God is going to look like. You know, the thing about the local church that is different is that the local church is the body of Christ is designed to be a reflection of a, a, a different reality. In other words, if you want to show people what heaven's going to look like, it should be displayed in your local church. The local church should be a glimpse of ultimately what heaven is. So in terms of fellowship, in terms of worship, in terms of teaching, and in terms of diversity, that the local church should display that. So what does the future heaven reality gonna look like? Well, Revelation chapter five, verse nine says, and they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and open up its scrolls because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for every language, every tribe, every people, and every nation. You made them to be kingdom and priests to serve your God, and they will reign the earth. The vision of ultimate heaven is this. It's a place where all nations, all tribes, all languages are worshiping together. I think one of the dangers is that when we become segregated as a church, when we become limited, that we are actually giving people, we're not giving people access to God's kingdom. And so I want to just challenge you to think that way. But the other thing is this, is that there's a different reality happening here in Australia. It's, it's what we call a sociological reality, is that this nation is becoming very diverse. Even in this church, it's, it's, it's diverse. And it's becoming more and more so. When I first planted my church uh, 20 years ago, uh, or 15 years ago in L.A., uh, we started with 100% Korean-American. <laughs> so, so, but we had the vision of reaching all people. So how do you do that? Well, it doesn't matter who you start with necessarily. It matters where the vision is. And so the vision was always we're going to continually reach out to people different than us. And that group of, of 11, 12 people eventually d- developed into a group of 50, 60 people. And that started to de- develop into a group of uh, 200, to eventually 500 people. And out of our church, we were able to plant uh, 10 churches across the U.S. And not only Asian churches. We, our last church plant was an African-American church in Memphis, Tennessee. We planted a Chinese church up in Vancouver, Canada. And so the thing that excites me is I believe that we can do something bigger and better than what we could ever hope or imagine. And so I want to challenge you to think that way. And so we're going to be looking at a story uh, of Nehemiah. And I'm going to uh, give you uh, 
a few things in that story. So turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'm going to walk you through this whole story, uh, actually the, uh, relatively the whole book, within a very short time. So if you go to Nehemiah, and we're going to look at this story together. So let me find it here. But before we go to Nehemiah, you have to understand the story of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is actually a, a migrant. He is an immigrant. Uh, he's from a nation called Israel. They had uh, been taken into captivity. And, and, and there's a lot of parallels between Nehemiah and somebody from a different country. So Nehemiah was raised in Persia. Okay, so he was raised from a different country. But he, his heritage was Jewish. Uh, because of, of, of rebellion against God, God punished the nation of Israel and scattered them all across the, the, the Near Eastern Empire. So they went from Babylon, eventually went to Persia. But Nehemiah was unique, just like many of you. Uh, some of you are, are working in, in, in very you know, good positions. You're, you're lawyers, you're in finance, um, you're working in you know, uh, schools and so forth. And that's what Nehemiah, Nehemiah began to rise in the ranks of, of public office. Eventually, he became uh, the cupbearer to the king. So look at this in uh, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came. Uh, and, and some of them, and I questioned them about what was happening. Now, well, the thing about the story that makes it interesting is, is here is this migrant, here is this immigrant from a different country, now rising all the way to the very top of political leadership. By the way, do you guys know, you know what a cupbearer to the king was? Anyone want to guess? Okay, here was your job. You tasted the king's food. You, you drank his wine, you ate his food, and then you gave it to the king. Now, that's a pretty cool job, isn't it? It's like, uh, king, well, what advice do you need? Let, let me taste some of your food. Well, that, that really wasn't just, a, he wasn't just a food taster. What he was, was actually he was the most confident uh, uh, um, advisor to the king. And the reason that the cupbearer had to be in that role was it was somebody who was willing to take his life, give up his life for the king. Because here's the way you would assassinate a king. You would assassinate him by poisoning the food. And so throughout history, that one of the ways in which you would sort of uh, overthrow was that you would, you would, you would uh, make deals politically and then you would poison the food and the king would die. And so the king had to trust the cupbearer. So it wasn't just a sort of a, you know, like a, a cushy, a job where you just ate food. It was actually a job in which you were advising, but you were also his confidant. And so we see that Nehemiah is in this position. He's in a very high government position. And, and one day, somebody from his hometown comes. His name uh, here is, um, uh, he says, one of my brothers, uh, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with the sons from other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So uh, it's like if you grew up in Sydney most of your life, uh, let's say you move to a different part of the world. Let's say you move to um, you know, China or you move to U United States. And, and one day somebody from Sydney comes back and visits you wherever you're living. And they begin to ask you, uh, the first question you would ask them is, how's back home? How, are, how is so-and-so? How is everything happening? You know, what is everything happening? And you just want to catch up on the latest news. And that's what sort of Nehemiah wanted. He wanted the latest news of what was happening back home. And what he hears is devastating. 
Instead of hearing the good news, oh, you know, so-and-so is, is, is really doing well, they're making a lot of money, that's not what he hears. Instead, look at verse 3. They told this to me. Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So what Nehemiah hears is that his hometown is in destruction. Everything is being destroyed. People are in poverty. I mean, it's, 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 it's a really um, bad place to be. And, and I think for many of you who come from, the, let's say, uh, you, you, you know, your parents are from Korea. Or maybe you had friends in Korea and, and your hometown was being devastated. How would you feel? Well, that's how he felt. And then he says in verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So here's the first lesson I want to give to you. Where does the vision of God come from? Well, the vision of God comes from a burden that God lays upon our heart. And here's the thing here that is critical. And this applies to you individually. If you're asking God, God, what is it that you want me to do? Here's the first thing you pray for. You pray that God will lay a burden in your heart. In other words, the stirring of your heart. You, you would ask God, what is the thing that's, that's making me stay up at night? What is the thing that's causing me anxiety and stress? And so Nehemiah said this. When I prayed, I sat down and wept. For days I mourned and fasted. So here's the other way to look at it. What is the thing that makes you cry? What is the thing that makes you weep? And, and one of the things that Nehemiah began to realize is that God had stirred in his heart to help restore his home, his, his, his country. And when I thought about this, this is how my vision came. When I was a young pastor, like I said, in a Korean American church, I was really frustrated because, you know, I, actually I was part of a very large Korean church in, in Washington, D.C. and we had a couple of thousand people and, and in my English ministry we had a growing number of 200 uh, people that were uh, young adults. I mean, I was, it was a cushy job. I remember going to church every morning and it was easy. I had my own office. I had a, you know, a secretary outside. I just walk in. It was, it was, a, it was a big mega church. But there's something that, that wasn't right with me. Because I'm in the heart of the capital in, in, in Washington, D.C. And one day I talked to one of my young adults. And I said to my young adults, uh, hey, you know, why don't you bring somebody who is uh, uh, one of your coworkers to church? And they kind of looked at me. And they kind of looked at me really funny. And they said, Pastor Ray, I can't do that. I go, why not? Why don't you bring them to church? They can hear God's word. And he goes, I can't do that because they're not Korean. And I realized something that my Korean heritage be actually became the barrier for somebody to share the gospel. I said, oh, you, you mean, why can't you bring them to church? And they said, because they'll feel uncomfortable. They're not Korean. And it was at that point, God began to stir in my heart something that was very different. And I, I sort of was at a crossroad. Do I, do, do I choose this road of convenience or do I choose this harder road in which God is calling me out? And, and it was at that point that God began to call me out of the Korean church. It was the hardest decision ever. Because again, I, I could have, you know, growing this English ministry. And there's, by the way, I don't want to say this. There's nothing wrong with being an English-speaking pastor of a Korean church. But for me, I began to realize there was a limitation in that. 
And as I began to see sort of the, the next generation growing up in America, they were now becoming leaders. They, they were in political office. They were actually making good money. And they, were, they go to a Korean church, they still felt like they were little kids. But at the same time, that wasn't the issue for me. It wasn't that they needed to be uh, uh, leaders or be independent. The bigger issue for me was this. I was in the heart of the capital of the United States. That we were, as I was driving up, by the way, I saw all these embassies of all the different nations. And I began to say, where is an embassy for the kingdom of God? Where is a place in which all nations, all people can gather? And I said, God said, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to leave your Korean church. It's, it's almost like the getting, the getting on the weather balloon, but I want you to sit in that lawn chair, and I'm going to show you something different. And I remember leaving that Korean church was the hardest decision ever. Because it wasn't that I left out of, out of bitterness or anger, but, but God had placed this burden of reaching new people, and I had no idea how to do that. And so I started um, with uh, 11 people meeting in our apartment. And, and for the first time, this little group of 11 were from different ethnic backgrounds, uh, African-American, Caucasian, uh, Chinese, and, and some were Korean. And we began to start worshiping together. But here's the thing that I want to encourage you. What is the burden that God has laid on your heart? What is the thing that makes, makes you weep? What are the things that, that you think about, that pray about? Because vision has to start with burden. And the burden, it has to be a God-given given burden. And when you begin to have that, then God begins to stir you. And I believe that's the first thing for you as a church. In the next five years, what is the burden? And I believe that one of the burdens that, that I, I, I see as an outsider is the opportunity that you have in being a new community in Sydney to display to the world what true heaven's going to look like. If 80% of the churches in, in Australia are not even thinking about multicultural churches, and yet it's one of the most diverse cities, then something's not right. So number one, here's the first question for you. What is your burden? A little bit later in your small groups, I want you to talk about individually. What, and, and everybody has an individual burden as well, as well as a corporate burden. But here's the thing about what the local church is. The local church is the place in which the burden that God has laid on our hearts is activated now. So that every one of our burdens can be working together to fulfill God's ultimate burden for the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. So after you have a burden, what is it that you need to do next? And this is the most powerful thing. You, you need to bathe it in prayer. You know the thing that, that you guys as a church, as a young church, need to be doing more than any other is, is really asking God and praying for what, what that burden is. And notice what he says here in verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted. And then he says this. He prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, and the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and love with all those who love and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and let your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying. And so over and over again in the first chapter of Nehemiah, he bathes his burden in prayer. And one of the things that begins to happen is that God begins to do some, some miraculous things. I think this is where I've learned my greatest lesson as a pastor was this. Um, 
you know, when I graduated from seminary, you know, I got a job as a, as a, as a pastor. And, and I, I live, I, and I, I want to say I did never live by faith. But it was really easy for me not to live by faith. In other words, I could just kind of coast along. I could just do my religious things and, you know, preach a sermon on Sunday. I get paid a salary. I could just be like everybody else, sort of a professional young adult. I had a great congregation. But when you live by faith, it's a very different story. When you're willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ. So, so I remember the day came. My, I told my wife, uh, uh, her name is Sun. Uh, Sanju, I said, son, I think God's called me to plant a church. And I love her first response. You know what she said to me? She said, you know, uh, Ray, uh, God did not call me to plant a church. <laughs> I said, so, so what do you want to do? And she goes, why don't you plant a church and I'll stay at this church? So, so that was my positive affirmation I got from her. So, so you go. I, I'm, and so, so the first thing I did, here's my first prayer. Lord, if this burden is truly from you, let me receive your call through my wife. It was, a, it was a bold prayer because I had no idea whether she wanted to plant a church or not. And so I prayed and prayed and prayed. And about three months later, she comes up to me and she, she says, um, I think God is calling us to plant a church. And I had never really, I mean, last, remember I told you the first church I, I started did not work. It was, it was, you know, I was too young and I was immature. But this was a little different. And so I gave up my position at this established Korean church. And for the first time, I had nothing except God. I had no office. I had no uh, security salary. And my wife was now working, and, and I was doing a bunch of part-time jobs. And I began to pray and say, God, if it's truly of you, um, you're going to have to do things I've never seen happen in my own life. And so what I did was I, I created this little bookmark. had a bunch of prayer requests on it. And I just started sending it out to people. And things like, Lord, I pray for a certain amount of people, you know, 10 people. And the Lord brought 11 and 12. And then I, I said, Lord, I pray for 25 people on the core team. The Lord brought 30. I mean, it was, it was these kind of miraculous. But one of the most miraculous things that God did was financially we didn't have any money. So there was no mother church supporting us. There was no denomination supporting us. So we were just kind of by ourselves. And we said, okay, God, how are we going to survive? How are we going to actually get equipment, rent a space? We had no idea where the money was going to come from. So I said, okay, God, um, this is where you're going to have to do something miraculous. And so, um, you know, we've been sending out these sort of like missionary prayer letters to friends and family. Uh, but one of the biggest gifts I've ever received, even to this day, um, uh, I was invited to speak at a youth retreat in uh, Georgia, which is completely on the other side of the U.S. And I spoke at this youth retreat, about 150 kids. At the end of the youth retreat, uh, the, the pastor comes up and says, uh, uh, Pastor Ray, what can we pray for you, um, for your future? And, and I said, oh, would you pray that, uh, you know, I'm starting this new church. It's going to be a multicultural church. We want to reach all people. We want to reflect what kingdom of God is going to look like. And he, so he started laying hands on me and started praying. I went back home. A few weeks later, uh, I was out of town. I was in Chicago. And I get a call from my wife. And my wife says, uh, we received our first uh, uh, support let, uh, uh, envelope. And it was a girl, 10th grade girl, uh, grade 10, 15, 16 years old, who had been so compelled by that vision. She wrote me this, the, the nicest card. And in the card, she says, Dear Pastor Ray, I wish when I grow up, I can go to a church like that. 
I don't have a lot of money, but here's what I have. And, and it was a $5 uh, 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 bill. And she had, uh, sent that. And just the faith of a little girl who I didn't even know her name. I, I think I didn't even remember even talking with her, but I think her name was Christina. She sent me this card, and I just realized God is listening to the prayers of this little girl at this place. And so that $5 bill sort of was like a seed that was planted. Uh, a few weeks later, another pastor friend of mine, um, it was an Anglo white church, invited me to speak at his church, and I just shared the vision of what God was doing. And then at the end, uh, people were standing in line just to say thank you for coming to our church. It was an older white church. And this lady comes up, and she um, hands me a slip of paper. And, and because I was talking to other people, I just took the paper, and I thought it was just a thank you note, so I put it in my pocket. And um, as I was walking out, I remember I had to get my car keys, and when I get, got my car keys, there was a piece of paper. And I opened it up. It was a, it was a check, $500. And then uh, I, I went uh, to another church, a, a pastor friend of mine who's African-American. Uh, again, just, sort of the, the interesting people that God brought. It was, it was a large African-American church. Um, he invites me to speak at his church. At the end of the message, he puts up those two chairs. He puts it up here. He has me sit down. He says, we want to pray for you. Would your wife come up? And so my wife sat down. He said, we all want to lay hands on you. I want to pray for your ministry for the future. And at the end of that prayer, he takes out an envelope. And in that envelope, he says, when we started our church, nobody helped us. But when another church who wanted to reach all people, we decided we want to pass on what, what we received. So in that envelope was a check for $5,000. Little by little, God began to answer that prayer. And I, I remember we had a goal of, of, of asking God for uh, $30,000 to get it started. And as we had, again, little by little, all these th things began to add up. Toward the end of the year, uh, we were a little bit short. And I had no idea where this was going to come from. And uh, so I just prayed. I said, God, you know, we're, we're short, but that's okay. But I believe, God, you're, you're moving in this. And as we're praying, uh, an envelope came in the mail. And I opened up the envelope. It was a check. And here's the funny thing about the check. It was a check from somebody I never even know, didn't even know who it was. It wasn't, uh, it was a, a, a couple in LA who had heard through a friend of a friend of what we were doing. And they decided it was toward the end of the year, they wanted to give a, a, a $1,000 check. So, they, so I opened the, the check. I quickly looked at it. It was $1,000. I put it on the, uh, on the uh, table and I called my wife and I said, guess what? Somebody sent us $1,000. And... And she said, okay, I'll take a look at it. So when she came back home later that night, I said, look, look at the envelope. And so she looked at the envelope. And because I was so excited, I actually didn't see how many zeros there were. There was actually another zero. It was $10,000. Somebody I never met was willing to invest another $10,000. We, we had prayed for $30,000. God had exceeded it by $60,000. And what I reminded me was this, that when your bird is bathed in prayer, that the prayers that you pray are God's prayers. And that God will meet and supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. And so often we worry about the wrong things. And here's the thing that I see that's exciting for, for all of you. You have a pastor that is, is a man of vision. He wants to see the kingdom of God. And it's hard now because it's a lot easier just being monocultural or just reaching other Koreans. But the vision that you guys have is a God vision. 
And the thing that I want to encourage you is this, that if it's a God vision, then it has to be bathed in God prayers. And as you pray and say, God, where do you want us to go? Who do you want us to invite? Who do you want us to connect with? And it's not easy. It's risky. It's hard. But the thing about vision also is this. A third reality is not only do you bathe it in prayer, you also have to realize you will face opposition. Here's uh, after Nehemiah um, prays, uh, at the end of verse one, uh, chapter 1, he, he gives his job description. I was a cupbearer to the king. In, in some ways, I think he was describing that, that what he was going to do now was he's going to give up his position to lead his people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That was the, the burden that God had placed on him. Now, here is, here is one thing that, that was almost impossible, okay? In the, in the ancient Near East, if you are like the king's advisor, his special counsel, there is no way you could be let out of that. Uh, if you even request that to be let out of that, it would be like desertion. It would be like, uh, 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 what do you call it? When, when you're going against, uh, what, do you, what do you call that when you're like going against your, huh? treason, right? <laughs> it would be treason, right? Uh, we have the same word, good. All right. <laughs> In chapter two, uh, here's what happens. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, King Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in the presence of the king. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, here's the thing. Nehemiah had built such a trust relationship with the king that the king saw Nehemiah not just as his advisor, but he saw him as, as a close personal friend. In the next verse, it says, I was very much afraid because he knew that what he was going to ask would only be answered by God. He says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said this, what is it that you want? And Nehemiah says, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers uh, are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, the king could have responded and said, absolutely no. You cannot leave. And if you leave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have your head. I mean, that's the way a king could have typically, and that would have been an, actually a normal response. But notice what the king says in, in verse 6. And the king said, with the queen sitting beside him, and asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? And I love the next verse. It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. In other words, the reason that the king released Nehemiah was because he had been praying. And, and it was a God thing, and it was the most impossible thing. And I always tell uh, young church planners this, new churches, that you know when God's in it, when there are things that happen that are way beyond your control. And actually, it's a good thing. There are things that are impossible for you to, to conquer on your own. Those are the things where God has to intervene. A few years ago, uh, about a year, uh, two years ago, our church had been growing, and we were now renting a public theater. And this public theater, uh, we're full. We have uh, 140 children in our ministry. We have 60 youth. Uh, our, our, our church is doing well, but we just did not have space. And so we're looking to, 
to purchase a space. So we were looking around in our area, uh, like property here in Sydney, uh, in Southern California, it's really, really expensive. And so we found the building, it was like $3 million, and oh, maybe this is the way God's going to answer. And so we were trying to raise money within our church, and we couldn't raise enough, and so we had to give up the, 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 the building. And I remember, um, kind of jokingly, I said, you know what, wouldn't it be funny if God just gave us a building? And then six months later, a church calls us and says, hey, we, we don't have a pastor, would you consider merging with us, and we'll give you our building. And so six months ago, we merged with this church, and now we have this building. But here's the thing. God could do far more than what you could ever hope or expect. And there is no such thing as limitation with God. And oftentimes in our own sense of human sort of, sort of you know, ingenuity or, 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 or sort of, you know, uh, ability, we think that we can do anything. And somehow if we can't do it, then, then we get discouraged. But let me say this, that God ultimately is in control. So the obstacles are actually uh, for, for your good. And so here's the next thing, is that the kingdom vision will always face opposition. And the opposition will come internally as well as externally. And, and here's the thing about Nehemiah. As he's building this wall, you would think that the king gave him a, a, a verbal yes. You would think that he would be able to go and build without any opposition. But in verse 19, chapter 2, uh, he finds these people who are in opposition. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they marked, mocked and ridiculed us. What is it that you're doing, they said. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered to them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim to his historical right. Here's the thing that, that we'll always have. If your vision is from God, as a church or individually, you will always face opposition. Why is that? Well, number one, Satan opposes the plan of God. So the first opposition will always be uh, Satan himself because he does not want you to succeed as a church. He does not want individual believers to succeed. So Satan will oppose you. The second group that will oppose you is that the world will oppose you. Your city, your government, the people that you think should be your friends, they will oppose you. But here's the third thing that is the most challenging. The people of God may oppose you your family, your other believers, because they may not understand, why are you doing this? And, and here's the greatest battle, and Pastor Steve will tell you this, that sometimes churches do not work well with each other. And what ends up happening is that churches oppose each other. Rather than advancing God's kingdom, they would choose to grow their own kingdom. And I remember, uh, even as a young boy, one of the most difficult things that I had to, the number one opposition I had growing up in terms of my faith was my parents. And it wasn't that because they, they weren't Christians. They went to church. My dad was a choir director. And I remember going to, um, I, I, God had called me into ministry. I was really young, about 15, 16 years old. And I knew I wanted to be a pastor. And I was so excited. I told my dad about it. And, and, and he wasn't excited about it. And I told my mom. And she was, and, and, and typical Korean response. They said, why don't you be a rich businessman and then support the church? <laughs> why do you need to be a pastor? And uh, so I remember uh, I, I went to a Christian university, Bible college. <coughs> and I took my father to this Bible college. And uh, he sat there. And, and they were giving sort of financial uh, you know, like what the cost would be. And, and you could see in his face he was not happy. And so we drove in the car. So I said, hey, Dad, what do you think? This is a great university. It's, it's a great college. And uh, he looked at me and he said, if you go there, 
don't come home. And I remember at that point, I was 16, 17, 18 years old, and I had to make a choice. Do I follow the call of God, or do I listen to what my parents... Now, it doesn't mean that, that I, you know, I, I'm telling you to disobey your parents, but I knew that the call of God was so strong. I said, you know, and I had to kind of wrestle with it, and I'm glad I did. Because what opposition does is that it clarifies your vision. Opposition allows you to kind of say, is this really from God, or is this some sort of fanciful idea? And so here's the thing. When you are opposed, it is actually a way in which God builds and enhances your faith. You know when Christianity thrives and grows? It's not when it's easy. It's when it's hard. Places like Iran, where uh, there is, was the second most uh, oppressed, persecuted place for Christians. It's actually one of the places where Christianity is growing. But places like Australia and the United States and Western Europe where the gospel has free reign, where we have so much prosperity. Sometimes opposition is something that we avoid, but opposition is what actually builds us. Because here's what opposition also does. It leads us to depend on God. And so I, I started praying, and I remember going through that opposition. But here's a, here's a beautiful story uh, that happened. So I, I, was, I was leading this large English ministry. I, I talked to the senior pastor about me planting this multi-ethnic church. And, and his first response to me, and he's a, he's a godly man. It was, a, it was a large church. And he, he and I, uh, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But he said, Pastor Ray, just realize this, that um, most of the young, young adults, young family, they're selfish. They won't support a church. You'll die. <laughs> I mean, financially, you won't survive. And I said, okay, but I'm still willing to do it. And so he gave me his uh, uh, sort of blessing. He, and he said, I'm so sad, but you go do what you do. And, but I did make a promise to him that, that you know, I, I wanted to reach a different group of people. So he uh, uh, released me, and I planted this church. We started with 11 people. That 11 people grew to 30 people, eventually 50 people. Uh, after a year and a half, about 150 people. And you know who the first person I invited was, was my former senior pastor. And I wanted him to come and to celebrate. So I invited him, and he accepted. And at the end of the celebration, he gave a, a final word. And he said something to me. He goes, you know, Pastor, when Pastor Ray left, you know, we were sad because he was doing a good ministry uh, job here. But now I see. Now I see what God is doing. And it was just affirming to me that, that my senior pastor now saw the work that we were doing. By the way, that church that I started was started 20 uh, one years ago. Uh, last year, they invited me to be their 20th anniversary speaker. And they're still growing and thriving. And they're much more multi-ethnic than I had ever envisioned. And so that's the last point I want to say, is if the vision is from God, even though it's hard, it will ultimately be accomplished. No, notice the fourth thing. Vision will be completed with the help of our God. I want you to notice this in chapter 6, verse 15. I love this verse. Nehemiah's mission, his burden, was to bring salvation to his people by building the wall in Jerusalem. And, and so he goes and he faces opposition. And then it says this. Um, um, I actually go back to verse 14, chapter 6. It says, remember Tobiah and Sambalad, oh my God. Because they, what they have done, remember the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate. In other words, he's praying. These are the people that have opposed me. But then he says in verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu in 52 days. And I love this next verse. When all our enemies heard about this, 
all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Is that beautiful? They realized, everybody began to realize that this work was not a work that we were able to accomplish, but this work was done because God was in it. You know, the good news for, for you at the chapel in Sydney, you guys are on the forefront. You guys are on the cutting edge of uh, what we did in 20 years ago in, in D.C. And, and then we did it again in, uh, uh, in um, Los Angeles. It was hard. And it was, we didn't grow for a long time. We were struggling. But then as, as God began to grow our group, we began to see other things happen. And, and, and we began to plant other churches. And I began to realize something. That if it is a God-given vision, it may take longer than we had imagined. So timing is, there's no guarantee on time. But as long as you're faithful to that vision and you persevere and you as a group, the most important thing is you as a group have to be healthy. And as a healthy group, you begin to grow. And ultimately what you'll see is what we call the flywheel effect. As you're doing your ministry, then you become the catalyst for other big things. And out of this group, I could see what, what can happen. 20 years from now. You guys will be sending missionaries all across the world. You guys will be planting churches all across Australia. You guys will be impacting other nations like the U.S. and Korea and China. And I could see that happening because that's what God did for us. Our last church plant was, or a couple of church plants was in Xi'an, China. And now we're planting a church out in Memphis, Tennessee. And every year now, we're planting a church. But it took a long time to get there. It took us 20 years. So here's what I would say is the, where it all begins is vision. That if you have a vision from God and you are able to see that vision, then I would say persevere. Remember yesterday I talked about don't give up. No matter time you see you get knocked out, don't give up. One of my favorite um, um, companies is Apple. Now this, uh, you guys, ha ha this is an iPhone, right? <laughs> So I love Apple. Why? Because I actually worked in Apple too. I was, I was, while I was a, uh, <laughs> is somebody work at Apple here? You work at Apple. I need to talk to you. Okay. So, uh, uh, so I, I worked at Apple. Um, huh? Okay, great. We need to be friends. Um, but the thing I, I loved about Apple is I, I, I was into Apple before nobody knew what even Apple was. It was a very small company started by Steve Jobs, uh, Steve Wozniak in their garage. And, and back then, uh, this is how crazy I was. When I was in uh, uni, when I was in college, they came out with the first uh, Mac II. Okay, this is like this big box machine. And it was like 4000 U.S. dollars. And it, by the way, your phone has more power than that computer. <laughs> it costs 4000 U.S. You know what I did? I took out a loan to buy that. That's how fanatic I was. Uh, and I remember um, uh, the thing about Apple that, that, that was different than other companies back then was that they were a small company with big vision. So when Steve Jobs started Apple, he didn't start it as a computer company. He really had a, a different vision for Apple. He started as a company that was going to transform the world. And, and one day, uh, as he was uh, looking for a CEO, it had grown be beyond him. Uh, he had been looking around, who, so who's going to be the CEO uh, of Apple? And this is early on. And they said, hey, uh, one of the consultants recommended a vice president in New York City named John Scully. John Scully was um, uh, uh, one of the leading uh, uh, kind of emerging CEOs. And so Steve Jobs flew out, flew, flies out to Manhattan, 
and meets with Scully. And there's a great conversation he has. And he, as they're looking over the horizon, Steve Jobs, this young entrepreneur, says to Scully, would you come and, 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 and lead our company? We need to go to the next stage of growth. And Scully looks at, at Steve and says, nah, I'm, you know, maybe I'll just be your consultant, but you know, I'm not the right person to lead your company. It's, it was kind of small at that time. And then Steve makes the most ultimate challenge. He takes him, <laughs> looking at the skyline, and he says this, Mr. Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water, or do you want to change the world? <laughs> and, and I think that when he said that, it, it, it stirred in something in Scully, because it was a sense of mission. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water, or do you want to transform the world? Steve Jobs had the vision that one day, and by the way, uh, a few years ago, they came out with the one uh, thing that transformed the 20th century more than any other was the iPhone. Literally has transformed the way in which people communicate. But Steve Jobs had the vision that he believed to do that. And here's what I would say to you guys. You are one of the most unique churches. You guys are, in Australia, you're on the forefront. You guys can become a leading voice. It doesn't matter how big you are. But you Having the vision from God can make a difference in all of Sydney. Most of the churches right now are, are you know, kind of in the old model, K-M-E-M model. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I believe that you can become the voice for what God wants you to be. So going back, what is the burden that God's placed in your heart? Secondly, are you bathing that in prayer? And thirdly, are you willing to face opposition through that? And then fourthly, recognize that the only way you will ever accomplish God's vision is by God. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for the vision that they have, but I'm thankful for their willingness to step out in faith, to bring some obscure pastor from Los Angeles who they've never met, to come out here and to share these words and i believe lord that you have something big in store not because we deserve it not because we're worthy no but i believe because you have placed that vision that burden in our hearts and that you have placed it in steve's heart in the hearts of me they came out of a situation lord that were were lord it was it, they could have easily stayed in and could have been convenient and so forth but in reaching the next generation they realized that there needed to be a different way a different model so, Father, this is a unique church, and you've given them a unique task. I pray, Lord, that even though they feel weary and tired and feel like they're, at times, not making a lot of progress, that you would remind them, ultimately, it is you that makes the progress. And that as long as we are faithful to your vision, to your call, that you will then use us in the right season at the right time. And one day, Lord, I could see this church growing and thriving, sending off uh, missionaries, planting churches, developing leaders. And I could see that happening as these children are growing up. And I remember, Lord, even in our church when we had only a few kids, we said, where, where are we going to reach all these kids? Now we have so many, and, and, and you have given us the vision for that. So help us, Lord, not to be discouraged Help us not to be in despair because it's not happening quick enough. You never guarantee us the timing. You only guarantee us the vision. So as long as we're faithful to that vision, help us to continually persevere.
for your kingdom, for your name and your fame here in Australia. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.